Chapters 15 and 16 of Love's Bitterest Cup by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 15. The Writ of Habeas Corpus. Abel Force began to peruse the document and frowned as he went on. And well he might. For it was no less than a writ of habeas corpus issued by a judge of the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia ordering Abel Force to produce the body of Odalite Anglesia, otherwise Odalite Force, before him the next morning, April 2nd, at ten o'clock. Abel Force, as has been seen, was a law-abiding man. On this trying occasion, under this galling insult, he commanded himself with wonderful power. "'Very well,' he said, "'you have done your duty. I will obey the order. Take that man away with you.' He has committed a gross breach of the peace, but let that pass for the present. At this moment, Colonel Anglesia came up and said, I will meet you before the judge tomorrow morning. For the present, having seen the writ of habeas corpus served upon you, I withdraw. Good evening, sir. Ladies, good evening. And with as courtly a bow as if he were leaving the drawing-room of a duchess, Colonel Anglesia went out, followed by the policeman. Now be still, Lee, this shall be settled equitably to-morrow. For the present nothing more can be done, said Mr. Force, as with a long breath of relief he at length released his prisoner. But Lee was no sooner free than he dashed out of the room and out of the house in pursuit of his enemy. Let him go, said Abel Force in desperation. Let him go, but I do not think he will catch Anglesia. He has probably taken a carriage, for I heard wheels roll away from the door before I released Lee. "'Sir, can I be of any further service here?' inquired the aged minister, coming forward. "'No, reverend sir, you cannot. But you will perhaps take some refreshments before you leave,' replied Mr. Force. "'Not any, I thank you. This has been a most agitating evening. If I can serve you in any manner, at this trying crisis, pray command me.' "'We thank you very much. If my presence to-morrow can avail in any way—I do not think it can—' "'Yet yeah, I should be glad to have you come.' "'I will meet you,' said the rector, and after shaking hands all around, he left the room. Mr. Force stepped quickly over to where his wife sat by his daughter's easy-chair, holding her hand. Odalite's violent paroxysm of distress was over, but she still sobbed with a low, gasping breath as she lay back in a state of exhaustion. He looked at the girl and sighed. He would have spoken to her, but his wife raised her hand in warning and said in a low tone, "'Leave her alone for a little while. "'She is very much prostrated, but will rally presently.' "'Elfrida,' he said then, bending over the lady's chair, "'Elfrida, can there be any truth in that man's pretended claim to our child? "'Not that it will make any difference in the end, "'for I swear by all that is sacred he shall never possess her. "'But you remember when we read that sketch of his life in the Angleton Advertiser. "'We noticed that the date of the death of his first wife, as given there,' was some weeks later than the date of his marriage with a California widow. "'I remember,' said the lady faintly, for her heart, her mother-heart, seemed dying within her. And such being the case, we should be thankful that Odalite's marriage with Lee was stopped just where it was. It would have been most disastrous if the man had reappeared and set up his claim to Odalite weeks or months after the marriage had been consummated. "'Indeed it would,' replied the lady, and yet, Abel, it may all be a fraud. He may have no claim on her whatever. If he could contrive to have published a false obituary of himself, 
Could he not even more easily have inserted in the sketch of his life attached to it a false date of the death of his wife? Indeed he could. The whole question of his right to Odalite hangs upon the true date of Lady Mary Anglesia's demise. If she died before his Californian marriage, then is the Californian woman his lawful wife, and Odalite is free. If, on the contrary, as is made to appear in that fraudulent obituary notice, Lady Mary Anglesia died since the marriage with the Californian, then was that second marriage a felony, laying him liable to prosecution for bigamy, and to imprisonment at hard labor in the state's prison, and his third incomplete marriage ceremony with our daughter only an awkward entanglement, which affords him a false excuse to lay claim to her, and which it may require the wisdom of the law courts to unravel. I have no doubt as to the final issue. We must be prepared to meet the villain in court to-morrow. We must prove the arrest of the marriage ceremony at All Faith Church three years ago, by the appearance of the would-be bridegroom's wife. Fortunately, we have a cloud of witnesses to that fact. Besides ourselves, all the young people who are our guests were present at the church on that occasion. "'Cheer up, my love,' he said, going over to the other side of Odalite's chair, and bending over her. "'Your perfect freedom and happiness is but a question of time. And meanwhile, you will remain under my protection.' "'Dear Papa, I cause you much trouble, do I not?' she inquired, tenderly putting her hand in his. "'No, dearest, you never caused me any trouble in all your life. A scoundrel has given us both trouble, but it cannot last long.' If the hearing should not be decisive to-morrow, I must ask for time, and get the California lady up here. Also later, that will take more time, I must send a trusty messenger over to England, to ascertain from parish registers and tombstones the exact date of the death of Lady Mary Anglesia. But through all, as you are a minor, you must and shall remain under my protection. Take courage, love." "'There is Lee!' exclaimed Mrs. Force, as the hall doorbell rang, and the door opened, and a hurried step was heard approaching the drawing-room. Mr. Force started up, and went to meet the midshipman. "'I could not find the poltroon. He has run away, as he did on that first occasion, when I sent Roland to him,' exclaimed the youth. "'But yet he shall not escape me.' "'Come here, Lee,' said Odalite, in a gentle voice. And the boy crossed the room, and knelt before her placing both his hands in hers. It was the old instinctive knightly gesture of allegiance and loyalty. "'What is it, Odalite?' he inquired. She bent and kissed his forehead, and then she said, "'My lover and husband, you would do anything for me to-night, would you not?' "'Anything, Odalite, my love and queen, anything. I would live or die for you. I would forego the dearest wish of my heart for you,' he exclaimed, lifting her hands and pressing them to his lips." and then placing them on his head, another old knightly gesture of allegiance and loyalty. "'Kiss me, Lee. Kiss me with the kiss that seals our marriage vows,' she said. He started up, and caught her to his bosom, and kissed her fondly, fervently, reverentially. "'Now, Lee, I wish you to promise me to forego vengeance on your dearest foe, to use no violence toward the wicked man who has caused all our trouble.' "'Because, dearest dear, there can be no violence without law-breaking, "'and no law-breaking without such consequences "'as would inflict the deepest sorrow, the fiercest anguish on me. "'And I have already suffered so much. "'You would not have me suffer more. "'You will promise me, Lee?' "'Yes, my best beloved. "'Yes, my sovereign lady. "'I will promise all you ask, "'even through the renouncing of my just vengeance, 
and the leaving of that incarnate fiend to the law. I wish it could hang him. I hope at the least it will send him to the state prison. I will do all that my queen, your wife, Lee, my angel wife requires me to do, and I will endure all that she requires me to endure. Meantime, although we must have patience until this case is decided, as it must be decided, in our favor, we are husband and wife, never dream that I can consider myself in any other light than as your wife, or that I could think of you in any other way than as my husband. We shall not be separated, but remain, as lately, members of the same family, inmates of the same house, living as a betrothed couple, or as a brother and sister, until this cloud from the depths of Tartarus has been cleared away from between us. Do you promise, Lee? Everything, everything you wish, Odalite. That is my dear, brave, loyal Lee. There was something in this interview, that had been held in the sight and hearing of all the little company, that so touched all hearts, that the boys and girls gathered around the young couple with looks of heartfelt sympathy. The girls kissed Odalite and pressed the hands of Lee. The boys shook hands with Lee and looked unutterable things at Odalite. "'My dear,' said Mr. Force to his wife, "'I think you had better take our daughter off to your own apartment. It grows late and she is tired, and we have a trying day before us to-morrow.' This was the signal for the dispersion of the little group, and they all bade good-night and retired. So ended Odalite's second wedding day. CHAPTER Sixteen. THE NEXT MORNING It was a drizzling, chilly, cheerless day, one of those relapses into winter, into which early spring sometimes falls. Not one of the family had been able to sleep well after such a harassing evening as they had passed. They assembled around the breakfast-table with pale faces and careworn looks. The table was full, and even crowded, with family and guests, sixteen in all. Odalite was the last to come in. Her face was deathly white, and showed signs of an anxious and sleepless night. Yet she greeted the whole party with a wan smile and a slight bow as she took her seat. Not one word was said of the ordeal soon to be passed through. Neither Mr. nor Mrs. Force would allude to it, and no one else durst. The conversation went on, or rather failed to go on, in a board of jets. Subjects were started, but fell. Someone said it was a horrid day so different from yesterday, and more like November than April. And several others said yes, or some word to the same effect, and that subject dropped dead. Someone mentioned that the English opera troupe would perform the Bride of Lammermoor that evening. No one answered that venture except Mr. Force, who as a mere matter of form and politeness said he believed so. Ned Grandier said it was good growing weather for the crops, but no one complimented him by a reply. And at length the dull repast was over, and all arose from the table. It was now nine o'clock and raining hard. At ten Mr. Force and Odalite were required to arrive before the judge. As the party left the breakfast-room, the guests dispersed to parlor, library, or chambers, as their inclinations led them. Mrs. Force called Odalite and went upstairs, followed by all her daughters, to prepare for her drive to the courthouse. Lee followed his uncle into a little smoking-room at the back of the hall. Neither of the men went there to smoke. Mr. Force went there to be alone while he waited for his wife and daughter, and Lee to speak to his uncle. "'Uncle Abel, can I have a word with you?' "'As many as you please, or as time will permit, my boy, come in.' They entered the room, and took seats at the little round table, on which stood pipes of every description, 
cigar cases, tobacco pots, tapers, ash saucers, and all the paraphernalia of smoking. Uncle Abel, inquired Lee, as soon as they were seated, have you secured counsel? No, Lee, nor shall I do so. To engage counsel would be to give the case more importance than I choose to give it. It is a simple habeas corpus, a very informal matter, and in this instance a very impertinent one, an abuse of the privilege of habeas corpus. I do not need counsel, and shall not have any. I shall tell my story to the judge. I do not even know that I shall call a witness. That is all that will be necessary. I have no fears of the result. Uncle Abel, I must go with you before the judge this morning. No, Lee, emphatically objected Mr. Force. No, Lee, I cannot have my daughter, my young and innocent child, exposed to the ignominy of standing between two men, each of whom claims her as his wife. The young man was shocked at the presentation of the case from a point of view he had never contemplated before, and too greatly confused for a moment to make any reply. At length he said, "'But, Uncle Abel, we know who has the right to her. We know that she is my wife.' "'No, Lee, we do not know that. We only think we know it. We thought we knew that Angus Anglesia was dead and in Hades. But you see, he is alive and in Washington.' "'That is a nuisance, but his being here gives him no claim on Odalite.' "'None as you and I think. But we do not know what the law may decide, Lee. It is of no use going over the whole situation again. You know it, as well as I do. Angus Anglesia married Anne Maria Wright, August 1st, 18 Of that transaction we have abundant proof. If Anglesia were then free to contract that marriage, then he is the lawful husband of Anne Maria Anglesia, his second wife.' But on the other hand, if his first wife, Lady Mary Anglesia, did not die until the 25th of that same August, then his marriage with Anne Maria Wright on the first of the said month is null and void, and he was free to contract marriage at the time that he married my daughter, and Odalite Force is his legal second wife. "'Oh, heaven! Oh, heaven! Oh, heaven! What shall I do?' exclaimed the youth, starting up in a frenzy. "'We must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves,' said Mr. Force. "'For, Lee, we have to deal with one who has the malice and subtlety of a demon from the deepest abyss. "'He is absolutely unscrupulous. "'I do not know, mind you, but I firmly believe he has falsified dates to suit his own base purposes. "'I believe also that he designedly laid a trap for us by which he could satiate his vengeance. "'I—I I shall kill him and hang for it,' burst forth the boy.' "'No, you won't, Lee. You came of Christian parents, and have had a Christian training. "'You will do nothing unworthy of your race and education,' calmly replied Mr. Force. "'Uncle,' exclaimed the youth, "'how came that false publication of his death, with time, place, and circumstances all complete, "'in the newspaper of his own village? "'It is amazing. It is incredible that such a fraud could have been perpetrated.' "'Yes, it is amazing and incredible.' and yet we know that it is a fraud, since the man is alive and well. How it was done I do not know. Why it was done I can well understand. It was done as a trap to catch us and place us in a false and humiliating position. I have no doubt that from the hour of his ejection from our house and his ignominious retreat from the neighborhood, he meditated vengeance. I have no doubt he lay in wait, watching us for these three years past, giving no sign of his existence." leaving us to suppose that we were finally rid of him, but all the while watching and waiting for your return, Lee, to see what would come of it. I believe that he knew the course of your ship as well as you did yourself, knew where she went and when she was ordered home. 
Then he manufactured this false evidence of his death, with time, place, and circumstances all complete, as you said, with obituary eulogy, sketch of his life and career, and including his marriage with Lady Mary Merland, the date of her death, August 25th, 18 blank, and his second marriage with Odalite Force. I, I, uncle, I am quite anxious to hang for that man, panted the youth. But we are not willing to let you, Lee. Your execution would be of no sort of comfort to Odalite, or any of us. Now let me go on. All these concocted and published falsehoods had but one end, to entrap us all into a false sense of security, and to allow you and Odalite to contract marriage on your return from sea. I have no doubt that within ten days after your ship sailed from Rio de Janeiro, homeward bound, he sailed from Liverpool to New York, under an assumed name, and that he has been in the country ever since, and lately in the city, watching for your wedding day, so that he might turn the tables, and snatch your bride from your possession at the very altar, as it were, and so humiliate us all in retaliation for his exposure at All Faith Church. Oh, the demon, the demon! Any fate would be cheaply bought at the cost of sending him to— Lee, Lee, control yourself, remember your Christian parentage and training, and do not speak and act like any border ruffian. Remember also that we do not know the man has falsified the date of his wife's death. We only think so. Uncle, suppose the judge today should decide against us, should a judge Odalite to be the wife of that devil, and give her to him, what then? I do not for a moment anticipate any such decision, said Mr. Force. Yet it is possible, muttered Lee. But most improbable. The case, I think, from every point of view, is too clearly in our favor. You think, but you do not know. Our thoughts have misled us up to this moment, and may be misleading us now. But admitting the possibility that the decision may be against us, that Odalite may be given into the custody of Anglesia, the father's face darkened and flushed. I would not give up my child to the scoundrel. But suppose the court were to order you to do so. I would resist and take the consequences. I would never give my child to that devil. I would sooner— Heaven knows that I would sooner throw her alive into that lion's cage in the circus at the Smithsonian Park over there. But, uncle, suppose in your case of resistance the officers were ordered to do their duty and take the woman from you by force to give her to the man. You know such might be the effect of your resistance. What then? The father's face darkened like a thundercloud. His eyes under their black brows flashed like lightning. Lee, he said, why do you torture me by such improbable suppositions? In such a case, I should, I could, be another Virginius, and give my child instant death to save her. No, uncle, you would not. You came of Christian parents, and you have had a Christian training. You would do nothing unworthy of your race and your education. Uncle, remember your Christian parentage and training, and do not speak and act like a heathen Roman, said Lee, solemnly. The two men looked at each other, in comic embarrassment, almost approaching laughter, had not the matter been so serious. We have been letting imagination run away with us, Lee. You and I have been getting ourselves into unnecessary heroics. There will be nothing to justify it. It is true that we have the most infernal villain to deal with that ever disgraced the human form. But he must be dealt with by law and not by violence. All will be well, said the elder man. Uncle, it was I who got into heroics first, and then stung you into the same state. But really, now, I do not think that I shall have any occasion to murder Anglesia and swing for it, or that you will have any cause to enact the Roman father and slay your daughter to save her. Wait for my coup. 
If I had been that same Roman father, it would not have been my own kid I'd have killed you, Bet. It would have been t'other I'd have gone for. I mean, I never could see the sense of Virginius slaying his own daughter, and running amuck through the streets of Rome, instead of doing execution on the minion of Appius Claudius in the first place. It was wrong and foremost, like most of the heroic dodges. Of course it was Wynnette who spoke. She was standing within the open door. "'What do you want, my dear?' inquired her father. "'Mama sent me to look for you, and tell you that it is half-past nine. She and Odalite are ready, and the carriage is at the door.' "'Thank you, dear. Tell Mama that I will be with her in a moment,' said Mr. Force, as he arose from his seat. Wynnette ran off with her message. "'So, Uncle, you will not allow me to go with you to the examination?' inquired Lee. "'By no means. On no account, dear boy. You yourself should not wish it under the circumstances.' "'All right. Who is going with Odalite besides yourself?' "'Her mother, her two sisters, Rosemary Hedge, and the four Mrs. Grandier.' They can't all go in one carriage. No, no one but Odalite, her mother, and the eldest Miss Grandier will go in our carriage. The others will go by the streetcars, under the escort of Roland Bayard. I take a crowd of ladies with me, not only as witnesses to the broken marriage at All Faith Church, for the young men could have answered that purpose, but as the most fitting, proper, and delicate support to my daughter. I take only one man, Roland Bayard, not only as the most important witness, who brought Anglesia's Californian wife from San Francisco to St. Mary's, but also as a proper escort for the young ladies in the streetcar. But you, Lee, should in delicacy absent yourself. At least I will not press my company on you, Uncle, but perhaps I may be there later. Don't let anything discourage you, no matter how the case seems to be going. Wait for my coup, said Lee. Mr. Force was drawing on his light overcoat in the hall, to which they had walked during this conversation, and he scarcely heard or heeded the youth's last words, which seemed to be so significant. They met Mrs. Force and Odalite at the front door. The girls have gone on in the cars before. Roland is with them. I told them to wait in the vestibule of the city hall until we should join them, said the elder lady. Odalite said nothing. She was white and still, as she had been at the breakfast table. It was pouring rain, when the front door was opened, Mr. Force and Leonidas both took large umbrellas from the hall rack, and held them over the heads of the two ladies as they passed from the house to the carriage. When the two latter had entered and taken their seats, Mr. Force followed them, and Lee closed the door. "'I shall bring her back with me,' said the elder man. "'I am sure that you will,' replied the younger. The carriage drove off, and Lee re-entered the house, muttering to himself, "'Let them wait for my coup.' End of chapter 16